morning, family. Glad you are here. I really do hope that you sense the presence of God this morning. That's why we're here. Glad a lot of you guys are connecting with us online, and I hope you sense the presence of God. That's why we meet together on a Sunday. Before I get going on my stuff, I want to call attention to a card. You might see some of these around you in one of the back of one of these chairs, or you can pick one up on your way out of here. See, we believe that doing life with God is about more than an hour on a Sunday morning. We think we develop a life with God every day. It involves worshiping God on a regular basis every week. We believe it involves connecting with other Jesus followers in a very serious way, growing individually as a Jesus follower in my own relationship with God, and serving Him. And we've got this here that you, uh, it's just a little guide, you know, in this kind of a no-touch uh, culture that we're in right now. This is a way that you can continue to connect, to grow, and to serve, and of course, worship every single Sunday morning. These are some different suggestions about how to bring that into your everyday life. Available here in the room, out of the foyer, and if you're online, you can go to our website and you can print one of these off. We take that very, very seriously. Okay. Friend of mine from a long time ago, that's not Woody Hayes, he wasn't the friend, but my friend from a long time ago is a kid named Jeff Hill. Jeff Hill, and he worked as a trainer for the Ohio State football team. The Ohio State football team, coached by Woody Hayes. Any of you old guys remember Woody Hayes? Kind of a legendary football coach. Anyway, Jeff says that it was a Monday about two days after a kind of an infrequent and pretty bad loss that weekend. There were 24 whirlpools lined up in the training area, and there was a player in every single one of the whirlpools when Woody Hayes came in, according to Jeff, and he goes over to the first whirlpool, and somehow he reaches down with a mighty heave. He pushes it over. Player inside, naked, starts scrambling, trying to get back to his feet, and as he scrambles away, Woody yells, you can't make the club in the tub. Goes over to the second whirlpool, reaches down, and by that time, all of the players are scrambling out of the whirlpools as Woody Hayes is yelling at them, you can't make the club in the tub. It's kind of what Jesus was doing in the two verses that we're going to unpack this morning. The verses are found in Luke chapter 14. Now, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and there are crowds following him. And Jesus knows exactly where he's going and why. And the crowds that are following Jesus are clueless. They might have had a notion that he was going to Jerusalem. It was festival time. He was heading that way. But they had no notion about what was going to happen to him when he got there or what might happen to them if they kept following him. And Jesus turns around, and he looks at the crowds, and he says, you can't make the club in the tub. I mean, they're all acting like it's Mardi Gras. And Jesus knows it's a funeral procession, for him for sure, and he knows that for anyone who follows him, it's a possibility. I'm going to show you. Luke says large crowds are traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, if anyone, anyone comes to me, doesn't hate his mom and dad, hate his mama, hate his wife and kids, hate his brothers and sisters, even their own life. You can't be my disciple, he says. Well, it's weird, isn't it? 
I mean, even those who reject Jesus as Lord and God usually try to honor him as a great religious teacher. You know why? Because they probably don't listen to him. See, sometimes Jesus says things that just sound flat-out outrageous, almost despicable even. We call them tough texts, tough words, because sometimes what Jesus said is flat-out hard to understand. Other times they're not hard to understand, they're just hard to accept. You know what he's saying? Really? Sometimes you understand them and you accept them, it's just hard to do them. What he asks of us seems nearly impossible sometimes. And this is one of those places. I mean, Jesus turns and he talks to these crowds and what he says to them is outrageous, it's wild, it's almost despicable, isn't it? If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate, huh? Hate his mama and his dad. He doesn't hate his wife and kids. He doesn't hate his siblings. He doesn't hate himself. Can't follow me. Well, that's just weird. Did he mean it? And if he did mean it, can you call actually Jesus a good man? Can you call him a great teacher? And if he didn't, did mean it, I mean, if you've heard other things Jesus said, wouldn't that just make him a hypocrite? Because the words that he says here contradict what he says at other times, right? This is the same Jesus who said, you've got to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We get that. Equally important, you have to love your neighbor as yourself. And I'm just asking you, who are your closest neighbors? I'm, I'm assuming it's going to be your parents and your wife and your kids and your siblings, right? If you're going to love your neighbors, it's got to start with them, doesn't it? And then another place he says, you have to, you must honor your father and your mother. That's one of the Ten Commandments, and Jesus just kind of stamps his approval on it. Well, how can you honor your mom and your dad if you're hating them? So, we're going to try to unpack what Jesus meant when he said this. And it's huge, because he says it's for anyone following him who wants to be a disciple. I'll show you. Starts out like this. It says large crowds are traveling with him. Bunch of bunch of folks, not just his disciples. Turning to them, to the large crowds that are following him, he says, if anybody, anyone, which I assume means you too. I assume means me too. And I assume it means that whatever he says next is not optional. He's not setting up extra credit. This is for anyone. This is not setting up a double standard for those who want to be really spiritual as opposed to those who just want to be kind of spiritual. See, I think a whole lot of people do kind of a lot of picking and choosing when it comes to following Jesus, picking the parts that they agree with and going with it and kind of pushing away other parts. I mean, I believe in Jesus and all that, but I'm just not into loving my enemies, that kind of stuff. Or I believe in Jesus and all that, but I'm just not about forgiving people not someone who's hurt me as bad as she did. Or I believe in Jesus and all that, but I don't know about this giving him your first part back, all right? I want to be a Jesus follower, but I don't want to be a fanatic. <laughs> One guy that I read said that a Jesus follower doesn't have permission to go around trying on different crosses to see which one fits best. See, he's not talking just to the twelve. He's not talking to those of you who want to be super spiritual. He's not just talking to holy men like me. 
That's humor, by the way. You can chuckle. It does mean that whatever comes next has got to be important. If anybody, he says, wants to be my disciple, so we need to dig down and really understand what comes next. It's for us. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate, doesn't hate, he can't be my disciple. In fact, if you look at it, the Greek, can I have the next slide up if we can? This word actually here is in the present tense, which means that you can actually trans- translate it if anyone comes to me and does not keep on hating. This is not a one-time hate, one-time decision. This is a way of life. It's a lifestyle. Now, there's good reason that most translations, most English translations, soften this. Let me show you how they do it. If you're looking at the NLT, next slide if we could. He says, if you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Now, that makes more sense, doesn't it? If you're looking at the message, those who come to me cannot be my disciples unless me love, they love me more than. That makes more sense than hate, right? By the way, these are great translations. They're capturing what Jesus means. Good News Bible says, if people come to me and are not ready to abandon their parents, their wife, their kids, their siblings, even their own life, they can't be my disciple. Even the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew tells the same story, changes just a couple of words. If you look at this scene in the Gospel of Matthew, he says, anyone who loves his father or mother, his son or his daughter more than me is not worthy of me, Matthew says. And they're right, because sometimes, and you, you don't always hear this, guys, but this is, this is so, Sometimes if you take Jesus' words literally, you misunderstand them. Sometimes they are idioms, they're figures of speech. They are supposed to be taken as metaphors. And what we're looking at here is a metaphor. See, there are different kinds of love, aren't there? Radically different kinds of love. Vern talked about it last week. Me, I love bacon. I do. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love my grandkids. Love my God. They're not all the same. In fact, there's actually different words for love in the Greek. If I love my parents, I love my wife, I love my kids, I love my siblings, that's storge in Greek. It's a family kind of love. I love them as family. With my wife, I allow eros to come into it. It's a sexual kind of love, right? With my friends, the word is philos in Greek. It's a friendship kind of love. It's different. My God, it's an agape kind of love. It's something like, I hope, the way he loves me, which means it's a choice and it is absolutely unconditional. When it comes to God, it is overwhelmingly dominant. I choose him before I choose everything else, he says. You choose to love him first. At least you try. See, Jesus is using what's called a Hebraism. It's a, it's a figure of speech, a metaphor that Jews would use this occasionally in their writings. They're not supposed to be taken literally. I'll show you. Back in the book of Genesis, there's a story about Jacob and his two wives, Rachel and Leah. He didn't love them the same. In fact, you can see two verses 
back to back. It's actually in Genesis 29, I got the verses wrong, it's 30 and 31. But in verse 30 it says, Jacob loved Rachel more than he loved Leah, which means he loved them both, he just loved Rachel more. The very next verse, it says, when God saw that Leah was hated, what it means is that he loved Rachel so much more that it was almost as if he hated Leah. That's a Hebraism. That's what Jesus means. Of course, you're supposed to love your parents. Jesus tells us to. Of course, a husband and a wife are supposed to love each other. It's God-honoring. Of course, parents are supposed to treasure their kids even when they despise them, right? Because parents or kids sometimes are despicable. We all know that. We're still passionate about them. And our love for God, our our passion for God is supposed to blow all of those loves away over every other kind of love, with this agape kind of love. Let me illustrate it this way. Guys, there's a big difference between emotion and passion, right? Huge difference between the two. If you're a parent, you understand what I mean. You can be passionate for your kids when you despise them, right? You can love your kids deeply when you don't like them much. If you're a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about, okay? Same way with Jesus. You can be a passionate Jesus follower when you don't understand him. You can be a passionate Jesus follower when you don't like where he's taken you. You can be a passionate Jesus follower when what he says is confusing and hard. You know why? Because we choose to put our passions above our emotions. We choose our passions above our emotions. And we put him first above everything else that we love. Jesus says, choose to love me first. You treasure me over anything else that's important to you. You choose to make me the engine that drives your life. Do you know why? Because he's God. Because he's God. And because putting him at the center of your life is going to make your life better and it's going to make life better for them. But mainly because he's God. And that's his rightful place. So let's go back and look again at those words of Jesus. He says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and his sisters, that person can't be my disciple. (laughs) And there's some of you guys sitting here saying, Well, that's not hard. I already do. And you ever been around my mom, dad? They're terrible. You ever watch my kids? I hate them too. You ever met my brother, my sister? This shouldn't be so hard. How many of you guys, don't raise your hands, please. Please don't, especially if your parents in the room. How many of you guys have ever hated your parents? Don't raise your hands. <laughs> Maybe hate's too strong. How many of you guys have ever held a grudge against a parent? Ever been at war with your parents? I mean, I've seen it, haven't you? How many of you guys look at your parents and you can see all the mistakes they ever made? All the times that they ever mistreated you? And every one of them does. You know why? Because every parent is a sinner and we all mess up a lot. All of us. Or how many of you guys have ever played the comparison game with your parents? Man, I wish my mom was more like her mom. So much more supportive, so much kinder, so much more affirming. And some of you guys might look at these words of Jesus and you're thinking something like, uh, well, cool, Jesus gives me permission to do what I'm doing anyway. And if you draw that conclusion, you're going to completely, completely miss the point. 
because back then, family meant even more to them than it does to practically any of us. I mean, Jesus is in the middle of a patriarchal, very family-oriented society. Your life revolved around your family, which is why the prodigal son story hit them even harder than it hits us. You don't disgrace your family. You don't dishonor your family. You don't marry someone that's unacceptable to your family. In fact, your family's probably going to choose your spouse for you. You rarely move away from your family. So when Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you've got to hate your family, what he is saying is to them literally scandalous. Scandalous. And he meant it to be. He says, I have to be more precious to you than the most precious thing in your life. Not because Jesus had a godlike ego, but because Jesus was God. And God has that rightful place in our life. And life only works best when he's in that place. Now think about it. When you look at the model of Jesus, did Jesus ever hate his parents, Mary and Joseph? Of course not. Not in the way some of you guys do. He always honored his human parents. But we have scenes where the will of God and the will of his parents clashed and Jesus always chose the will of God. It's the way it was. Listen, guys, I could make the case. Nobody in the room loves anything too much. You don't love your wife too much, your kids too much, your family too much, your stuff too much, anything. Our problem is not that we love people too much, it's that we love him too little, especially by comparison. Boils down to this, guys, if your parents pull you one direction and Jesus pulls you another, Jesus wins. That's it. If your wife or your kids pull you this way and Jesus pulls you this way, you know the answer. Jesus wins. What he thinks about you, what he wants from you trumps anything they think about you or what they want from you. Every single time. We've got a great God, guys, but we do not have a tame God. I love this scene from the Chronicles of Narnia. Mr. Beaver tells Susan, Aslan is a lion. He is the lion. He's the great lion. And she says, oh, I thought he was a man. I'll feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Is he safe? <laughs> Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe. He's a lion. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's who our king is. And if you want to follow the lion, when the lion whispers to us, we say... Okay. However, whenever, wherever, whatever you ask me to do, my answer is yes. I am ready anytime, anyway. Can you say that? Will you read it with me? Read it with me if you would. However, whenever, wherever, whatever you ask me to do, my answer is yes. I am ready anytime, anyway. Could you tell that to God? as a Jesus follower. 
So when Jesus says in this world, if you want to follow me, you've got to put me ahead of the most precious things in your life, including your family, it's hard. And then it's almost like Jesus looks down through the centuries and he looks towards people like some of us and he puts in this next piece. He says, you not only have to hate your family, you've got to hate yourself. You've got to put me way above you. You've got to hate yourself. Whether yourself is about your stuff or whether yourself is about your own life. Because back then, family was maybe the hardest thing Jesus could ask you to give up. In our day, for a whole lot of people, hating yourself, hating your stuff, hating your life is probably the hardest thing God could ask of you. Right? You know how we are today. I got my rights. My rights. I have the right to be happy, right? Even if my pursuit of happiness puts your pursuit of happiness at risk, I have a right to be happy. One famous artist said something like this. She says, never be ashamed of what you feel. You have the right to feel any emotion you want. And you have to do whatever you... You have the right to do whatever makes you happy. You can't tell me what's right for me. You do what's right for you, and I'll do what's right for me. It's not your call. It's mine. Nobody can tell me what to do with my body. It's my body, right? No. You're not the boss of me. No one can tell me what to do with my life. It's my life, right? And Jesus says, no. If you want to follow me, your stuff and even your own life are mine. They're mine. We're Jesus followers, or you will be, I hope. Which means that his truth always trumps our truth. His paths always trump our paths. What he thinks is right always trumps what we think is right with no promise, no guarantee that it's going to make life easier. Just better. There's a difference. Infinitely better. I love my mom. I preached her funeral May 14, 2013. It was the toughest funeral I've ever had to do still miss her. I actually keep a photocopy of her obituary and a stack of papers on my desk so when I rummage through those papers occasionally I come across her picture and her obituary and I scan it and I wince and I smile. My mom was a very, very, very perceptive woman. She thought I was nearly perfect. But next to her love for Jesus, my mom hated me thank God. Both my parents are kind of weird. Now, they don't look that weird, talk that weird, but they think weird. After having four kids of their own, I'm number two, they started collecting other people's kids, fostering and adopting. Didn't have a whole lot of money, but they had a fierce passion for God and a fierce love for kids. Never had a whole lot of money, but we did okay. My parents were both teachers. My mom taught math and English. My dad taught music. They owned a nice house in San Jose. Good neighborhood, good church, good friends. 
And weirdly enough, they up and sold their house, quit their jobs, and bought a small dairy farm on the coast of Oregon. Any of you old guys ever watch Green Acres? Add seven kids to the mix. That was us. I guess my parents wanted for us a more peaceful and a more wholesome life, although I'm going to tell you that for a city kid, getting up at 4.30 in the morning to milk cows is not peaceful and wholesome. Might have been wholesome. I thought it was weird at the time. Here's what they did that was even weirder. See, after a while, we all grew to love that farm. Beautiful, 165 acres laid alongside the Sixes River in Oregon. Steelhead and salmon in the river. If you went to the top of our hill, you could look out and you could see the Pacific Ocean. Three of us kids by that time were married, off in college. And we were just getting ready to manufacture grandkids. Mom loved her kids. And she was excited about grandkids. Because I'm going to tell you guys, grandkids are way cooler than kids. Right? And then my parents heard a presentation at church. It was a girls' school in Zambia that needed teachers. Both my parents were teachers. That's Zambia, Africa. And they felt this tug on their heart. They considered it a summons. They considered it a call. So they sold their farm. They cashed in their retirement, packed up what they could take with them, including four kids who were still at home, and went to Africa. My parents were both in their 40s at the time. Our life in Oregon was pretty good. They left it behind and spent the next 12 years in Zambia and then in Kenya where they battled various exotic diseases like malaria and dysentery and hepatitis which gradually destroyed my mom's liver through cirrhosis. Learned to tolerate quite a variety of insects, snakes and other critters. And while there they missed the births of all of their first grandkids, Alethea, Andy, several others because they couldn't afford to come home and we couldn't afford to go there. So I remember after Alethea's birth, we got to make one of those phone calls where we could talk to them and mom had never heard the voices of her grandkids and Alethea typically was uncooperative. She wouldn't talk and so I pinched her until she cried. And my mom scolded me and then thanked me for letting her hear her granddaughter's voice. No FaceTime or Zoom back then, not even the internet, just letters and an occasional phone call. Twelve years later, Dad and Mom came home and their bodies were pretty beaten up by then. And they were pretty poor. With the help of us kids, they got along from month to month. They never had much materially. Didn't didn't have what they could have had. Would you consider them weird, my mom and dad? Some ways they're rather ordinary people, had the same kind of fears and insecurities that any of us might have. They did not let themselves be driven by those fears and insecurities. They did not let themselves be driven by the quest for security or comfort. The life to come was more important to them than this life. 
And God was way more important to them than family. In comparison, they hated us. So they threw away their securities more than once. Their decisions left them weak and poor. Their decisions cost us kids a lot of their time and perhaps even some material support, certainly any kind of inheritance. And yet, over 300 Africans and their children called Jesus their Lord through the work that they did while they were there. Eight churches stand in Zambia and Kenya because they hated even themselves, threw away their securities, and seven children learned the meaning of courage and faithfulness and the relative importance of God and family. So what kind of an inheritance did my parents leave us kids? What kind of a legacy did they leave us? Turn it around. The greatest legacy any of you moms and dads can leave your kids is to love your God so much that it's almost like you hate your kids by comparison. Greatest legacy a man can leave his wife or a wife can leave her husband is to love God so much more by comparison that it's almost like you hate them. Greatest legacy you can leave a friend, anyone you care about, is to love Jesus even more than you love your own life. You hearing what I'm saying? I love them best by loving Him most. I love you best by loving Him first. Do you believe that? Jesus says, if anyone, anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and sisters, and even his own life, that person cannot be my disciple. And bottom line, guys, that is a demand worthy of God. Would you want a God who demanded less? I mean, if putting Jesus in his proper place in your life is right, would you want a God who demanded less? Yes, it's going to cost a lot. But what will it cost you and what will it cost the people that you love if you don't put God first? See, there is simply nothing that we can gain for ourselves that will compare with what God offers when we put Him first. You believe that? You will. And God can only fully bless what you turn over to Him. He can't fully bless my wife through me unless I get out of the way and love Him first. He can't fully bless my children, my grandchildren, unless I put Him first and get out of the way. If you want the blessings of God in every part of your life, you have to put God first in every part of your life. So, what are you reluctant to hand over to God? What's sitting in His place in your life? Because there is nothing better that you can do for yourself, there is nothing better that you can do for anyone than you love than to put God first. The question is this, will you deny yourself 
got to make a choice, don't you? I hope that you have heard the whisper of God. I hope that you recognize that these are God's truths. And I hope that you understand that it's worth it. Guys, you don't come out second when you put him first. The people that you love don't come out second when you put him first, right? This is what we're made for. This is how life works best. Let God be your God. If there are those in this room for whom that is not true yet, let's get it done. If he's tugging at your heart and you need to make him the king of your life, let's do it now, right now. If you are a Jesus follower, but you recognize that there are things in your life that you are letting crowd him out, now's the time to let him be first. I'm going to pray a prayer, and then I'm going to sit right down there. And if anyone needs to come and chat, pray. I'll be glad to talk to you. We should have an elder in the prayer room back there. If anybody wants to go back there, he'll talk with you. If you want to hang just a couple minutes after the service, I'm going to sit here, and I'd love to talk to you. If you're going to make Jesus the Lord of your life, let us help you get started. Why don't you pray with me, please? Father, you're an amazing God, but you are God. And you make demands on us that are worthy of God. Help us have the wisdom and the courage to surrender. We love you dearly. In the name of Christ, we pray these things.